Welcome to the UK Virtual School Podcast, a podcast for parents, home educating families, and those looking for an alternative to the current education system. I'm Sid, the founder of UK's first online school that does things differently. We dare to be different. We dare to question the notion of our current education system. Join us as we create a movement to disrupt education and seek to create one which is innovative, inclusive and fulfilling for the children who will become the leaders and change makers of tomorrow. Join us and become part of the conversation. Welcome to another episode of the UK Virtual School podcast. Teacher by day, astronomer by night a summer hobby of a physics teacher. So in today's episode, we are going to be interviewing Aaron. Aaron is our maths and physics teacher, and he's been with the UK Virtual School for nearly an entire year. So Aaron joined us in October last year, and he has been a brilliant physics teacher and a maths teacher. Today, we're going to be talking about his hobby. He is into astronomy and has done lots over the summer. And today he'll be talking to us about what he's been up to and how you guys at home can get involved in astronomy too. So welcome, Aaron. How are you? I'm very well, thanks, Sid. As you've already mentioned, I've been doing plenty of astronomy this summer, which has been really nice. However, it is quite tiring being an astronomer by night and then father all day. Can you tell us a little bit about your background first, Aaron? Because you've studied physics, I believe, and then you've been teaching physics and maths for a long time. So talk mm-hmm. us through your journey and, and how you reached UK Virtual School. So first of all, I studied astrophysics at university when I was a teenager. I did a bachelor's degree, a BSc with honours in astrophysics. And by the time I finished my degree, I didn't think I was ever going to pursue physics again. I was totally drained and worn out and something that I'd loved before. It became so difficult to finish my degree that I didn't think I'd go down that route. So I actually went into finance. I moved into uh, working with banks and thought it would be nice to earn lots and lots of money. However, it wasn't for me at all. I worked for a few different banks, a couple of different banks over a two or three year period. And I thought I'd go into education, which is a direction I'd never considered before. And what I found is that when I did the teacher training course, I absolutely loved it. I really enjoyed the chance to talk about the subjects that I found my love for again after a couple of years being away from it. And I haven't looked back since. And this was, what? how long have I been teaching for now? For 13 years. And I totally love it. It's given me an opportunity to travel the world, which is something I had always wanted to do. My wife, Lucy, and I, we moved to China in 2009. And we were there till 2016, teaching physics and running science departments in international schools there. And then in 2016, we went back to the UK, we got married, and we travelled around Europe for a year. And we settled in Portugal, and that's where I'm living now. We're on the west coast of Portugal, a really beautiful part of the world, actually. We have stunning beaches. I live in a really nice community of people, lots of families, lots of people who have children the same age as our children, so this is a nice place for us. And when we moved here, so we moved here in 2017 uh, when my little girl had just been born and I was looking for work at the time so I I found uh, a few kind of alternative schools so they're international schools but they take a kind of alternative approach to education they two schools I worked for uh, both set out to do what's known as unschooling which is a very child-centered approach and the aim is for children to pursue their own uh, educational goals rather than it being something that's prescribed to them, which was a nice experience, which is a really valuable experience for me. It was good to see the other side. My teaching has always been 
about getting students to pass exams. And many of my students have, have had no interest in physics or maths, but they've had to do it in order to get to the next stage in their academic lives. And so it was good for me to, to see this approach being adopted and, uh, and how effective this approach was. But then I, what I was finding was that I was having to travel a lot. So I wasn't at home. And the whole reason that we came here was because I want to spend lots of time with my family. And the traveling was too much. And so I looked into going into online teaching, teaching in the online school. And that's when you turned up, uh, Sid. That's when UK Virtual School turned up. And I have to say, I've been really impressed with online teaching in general, but especially with UK Virtual School. I had expected the move from a classroom into a virtual environment to, I'd expected to lose out quite a bit. I, I enjoy uh, the face-to-face -face interaction that I get with my students and the rapport that you develop in that kind of uh, situation. And I had expected for online schooling so there not to be as much of a, an opportunity to develop that rapport. What I found is the total opposite, actually. Mm. Students who I suspect would normally be quite reserved in a classroom setting with all the, the social pressures going on inside a, a traditional classroom, uh, well, they're in, a, they're in a safe place. They're sat in their homes and they're observing their teacher through a screen and they just seem to be full of confidence. And the feedback and the conversation that happens, I've been very, very impressed with. I think right from the onset when you did your interview lesson with us, uh, you got a feel for how the kids interact with the teachers and even that surprised you because you were like oh I really enjoyed having that conversation with that child yeah, yeah. it's a very different way of approaching education as well because it's about building that close relationship with the kids and knowing how they work and knowing how they tick and then you can adapt the learning to suit them. And another thing, actually, is that uh, I mentioned earlier that I was teaching in these. The best word I can come up with is alternative uh, approaches to education and this unschooling. Now, the unschooling approach is I don't know whether it's idealistic. I, I, I'm, uh, I'm kind of torn on this. I, I don't I don't actually believe there's just one best approach for all children, for starters. Yeah. I think that each individual student is different and requires a, a, a different best approach to it. But what I do think is that online schooling provides something that these little schools, they were fairly small schools in my local area that I was working for, and so they didn't have a huge budget. And in order to really achieve this sort of unschooling approach, you need to have specialists in every single subject area. Yeah. You need to have people who can inject passion into almost any subject because then students get the opportunity to really explore a whole range of different subjects or activities and you're not going to do that with a with a tight budget it's not going to happen whereas online schooling offers this opportunity i think you know we can grab specialists people who are passionate about the the subject that they're teaching and we can beam them to anywhere in the world within limits i mean if there's yeah. a big time difference then it makes things a bit tricky and so in terms of changing education i think that online schooling is a big step in the right direction for very good reasons actually and we can pick the best teachers anywhere in the world and uh, no, no matter where they're based you're not restricted by location you're not restricted by anything really and we know that hannah lives in a van and you're in portugal and we've got we've got other teachers that are aspiring to travel as well and um, and even from the kids' perspectives, they can be travelling, they can be at a campsite, and we've had that, a campsite in a hotel room in in the back of a car, and they can still access their education. And I think yeah. that kind of flexibility and, and the difference that we do from interactive and one-way stream as well gives families the flexibility to be able to pick something that works for them. And I think that's the important bit, that you can find a solution that works 
and there's that flexibility for you to pick and choose and to, to adapt to changing circumstances and to really kind of focus on the areas that you want to focus on and maybe delay the things that your kids are not interested in just yet. And, and I think that's the flexibility that online schooling can provide. So in terms of your interest in, in physics and, and also you've been teaching maths at UK Virtual School, how has that been like teaching those specific subjects? Because maths is difficult to teach online. A lot of working out to do. You almost need a whiteboard. You need to be able to see what the kids are doing. How have you kind of accomplished that? With the maths, I, what I have, you can't see it, but it's right next to me by here. And you know yourself, Sid, it took me a while to get this to actually work correctly. I've got my secondary camera and I've tried a few different approaches here in terms of conveying information to the students. And when I tried to use like a graphics tablet, I've seen some of the teachers in uh, UKBS have these graphics tablets. My writing is absolutely abysmal, really, really poor. And so actually I've got a, like a blackboard here, which I put paper on and I write on using my refillable pens here that I use. And my writing is tidy and I get to be in front of the camera as well as writing here. It gives me the freedom to take the lesson in the direction that the students want me to take them in, basically. I was tempted to go down the presentation route at one stage. There are some real benefits to this from the teaching and from the learning aspect of it. But actually, I, I, I really enjoy being a bit more flexible with how the lesson can go. And so if I hit a point where it's obvious that my students are struggling with something, then I can just move off down that path and we can continue to pursue that subject area until the students are happy with that, you know. In terms of seeing the students work, I tend to work more verbally with them. So math is all about practice. You, you really have to put the time in to to develop your mathematical skills and that goes for any student really and so what I tend to do is talk about a subject give some examples and work through them take any questions from the students and then ask the students to actually work through them now because the students are also writing on paper it is possible for them to hold it up to the camera in front of me but that's not always so effective it's sometimes not so easily seen so I just get them to talk about it really to talk yeah. me through and then I write out what they're telling me and and give them guidance as we go along and this works. This works. It's, yeah. it's feedback. The students are interacting with me. The students are happy with this. And then, as you know, we implemented the monthly homework, which is a chance for me to actually see their work and make an assessment of a piece of work that we're not working on together, which is also very, very valuable. Yeah, that's it, really, for the math. So they, they do the weekly homework that they bring in and you have that discussion. And this is exactly the way that I teach. And I think I imparted some of the knowledge that I'd acquired over, over the time yeah. of my online teaching and you've adapted to it. And I think this is what's really interesting. Each and every teacher at UK Virtual School teaches differently. They have their own method of delivery. Like I was interviewing Ant and Ant was talking about how graphics tablet has been revolutionary for him. It's made him be able to kind of engage with his PowerPoints a little bit more. And Hannah uses a mixture. I think she's got a second camera. She uses PowerPoint. She uses whiteboards. So Hannah has an impressive setup. Yeah. yeah. And then I think Elizabeth uses um, a completely different whiteboard because with English, it's all about typing and being able to show what she's working on. And she uses a lot of annotation tools. And it's interesting to see how each and every teacher has adapted and, and then we share best practices between us as well. So then there's that kind of sharing of what works for each of us. And the way that you, you're currently describing how you teach maths is exactly the way that I teach. Verbally asking a child to talk through and then actually showing it on your piece of paper um, on the camera is so powerful 
because mm. when they're talking the way through it, they they often recognise if they've made a mistake as well. Absolutely, they do. They really pick up on it. Yeah. So tell us a little bit about um, what's been going on over the summer because you've had an intensive maths and physics year with us at UK Virtual School. And then the summer we have no lessons and it's been a chance for you to breathe and you've been doing some exciting stuff with your hobby. I have, yes. Just before the summer, actually, I decided to buy myself a telescope. It's quite big. It's over there. We can share a, a, um, an image of it because I remember the day yes. that you shared it with us um, in our teacher group. And I was like, that looks like a robot. Yeah. <laughs> it looks like yeah. a fully fledged <laughs> robot with arms and everything. <laughs> It does look a bit like a robot. It looks like something straight out of Star Wars, actually. Yeah. Uh, like an R2-D2 kind of character or something. Yeah, it definitely It's does. really big. It's super cool. I'm so impressed with it. It's the second telescope I've owned. The last telescope I bought, I bought maybe three years ago. I do these events. I've been doing them for a few years now where people come and in the place where I live, a lot of my friends, they own land and they do permaculture design courses and there's a film festival. Some other friends are running a film festival at the moment, a documentary festival. Very active community that I live in. We moved here for this reason, actually. And so my part that I've been doing to add to my local community is I've been doing these uh, astro-gazing nights where People come along and they lie down and I have a laser pen and I take them through parts of the sky and talk about interesting subjects and uh, most of the night is actually taken up just answering questions. People have so many questions. If you lie someone under the stars and just tell them to just start asking questions, they can go for hours and hours and hours. So I was at my local market a few years ago after I'd started doing these astrogazing nights and I found a telescope and it was only 20 euros and it was, I would say it was about 50 centimeters long. And it had a diameter, it was six inches, so a yeah. diameter of about 15 centimetres. Anyway, it was a junior telescope. It was 20 euros, and I bought it because it was super cheap, and I didn't expect it to be able to do much. But actually, the astrogazing nights that I did after that with this telescope included, made a, it made a huge difference. The amount I could do with this telescope was quite astonishing. You could make out the moons around Jupiter. You could see Saturn had rings around it, but there wasn't much detail in the rings or, or of the planets. You could separate out a lot of binary, a lot of double stars and things. And then Corona hit, and so there were no astrogazing nights for the last year. I didn't do any astrogazing nights for the last year and a half. And then when I knew they were coming back around again, I decided to invest in this really, really big telescope. And what I can do with this telescope is amazing. Do you really carry impressive. that with you then to the events that you go? I do, yeah. But it splits into two parts. So the total weight of it is about 40 kilograms. But it splits into two parts. So two lots of 20 kilos is not so bad. And the base has got a big handle on it to carry it. And the locations that I've been at so far... I've been able to drive fairly close to the location, so I, I haven't had to carry it too far. But if I want to get out to some really dark skies, to the southeast of where I live, on the border between Spain and Portugal, I forget the name, it's close to somewhere called the Santa Clara Barrage, which is the Santa Clara Dam. It's some of the darkest skies in Europe. It's actually a dark sky reserve. They turn the streets the street lights off at certain times, and a lot of streets aren't street lighted at all because they're trying to preserve the dark skies there, and it's like a research station there and everything. When I take the telescope to this place, it's going to require me to do a lot of walking, so I'm going to need to find some sort of solution, whether it's some sort of wheelie thing or managing to strap it onto my back but it's going to be hard work but it'll be worth it is it going to be um a pathway because you could just get a trolley and wheel it over then if it I is could. 
Yes. Yeah. If it's a proper pathway, it depends whether it's a grassland or whether it's hilly, rocky, because then you won't be able to get something with a trolley over that. No, that's right. And this is the difficulty. So we'll see. We shall see. This Maybe this is a discussion for another podcast once I've... Uh, once I've the engineering there. of getting a telescope to <laughs> a li- remote just... location, right? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> when you just see me with one tear because I've managed to break my telescope as I tried to carry it over some mountain. <laughs> just make sure you've padded it well so if it does hit something that it's nice and secure. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, definitely. A lot of physics definitely. involved in that, right? So how yes. to carry it, how yeah. to keep it safe, how to how to make sure that you can get it to the right location. So explain to us what happens in one of these nights. What do you actually do? What do viewers actually see? Um, so talk us through from the point of arrival at the event and, and how the evening kind of goes ahead. I can talk to you about the event that I did last week, actually. So I did an event last Thursday, which was uh, the 12th of August. And basically, uh, again, it was on a friend's land and they've done a really fantastic job of doing this place up. It's really beautiful there. And they have big open space next to the kitchen. It's an outdoor kitchen. Everything's outdoor. And they've got these big teepee tents. They've got this gorgeous outdoor kitchen with a big space where they put tables. And then just alongside there, like the 20 second walk down from there is this big open platform which opens out onto the valley. And so you've just got this huge bit of sky, big, big, big sky to look at down there. So when people got there, we, we started about 7.30 and there was a three-course meal for people who came along and we enjoyed our meal. Was the meal um, space themed? So did they have like space cakes and, and like, no. <laughs> that'd be so cool. <laughs> <laughs> that would be cool. That's not a bad idea, actually. Maybe I'll think about that for the next one, actually. The chef was cooked some really nice Asian food. It was a spicy peanut coleslaw or something like that. And then I've actually forgotten what the food was like. To be honest, I've, I haven't spoken in front of 60 people before. This is the biggest group I've dealt with. So during the meal, I, I managed to hide it quite well, but I was, I was really on edge. I was just sort of running through things. The meal was delicious, but the, I had other things on my mind uh, at the time. But around about 9.30, the sun was setting and the moon was, was out and it was quite visible. It was a, it was like a four-day-old moon by then, so it was just a sliver of moon that we could see. So I went down and set the telescope up and people gradually made their way down. All the children were sent down first and they got to have a look at the moon through the telescope. And the detail you can see of the moon is really impressive. You can see the shadows inside the craters and you really get an idea of the three-dimensional shape of the moon. Wow. Um, It looks much better when it's not full compared to when it is full. When the moon is full, it's so bright, you just can't make any detail, basically. So when it's just a sliver of moon, you really get a feel for the curvature of of the surface of it. We looked through the telescope and everyone started arriving. And as the moon set, so the moon set around about 10.30, then I started my talk. So at the time, what was happening, it was the night of the Perseids meteor shower. So there were loads and loads of shooting stars that night. I talked for probably an hour, I think. But it wasn't just me talking. I told them a story about this comet called Comet Swift Tettle, which is a really interesting object. It's huge. It's like 26 kilometer diameter basically a big ball of ice just hurtling through space but it crosses our orbit and it's been described as the most dangerous object to all of humanity because if it hits us it it's it's big it's really major so does it regularly pass us every 133 years it passes okay so we're okay for another 133 years now 
the last time it passed this was in 1992, and so the next time will be 2126. It's very regular, and so its orbit is very, very stable. It's actually in an, in an orbital resonance with Jupiter, which I think is significant because as Jupiter is the biggest object in the solar system, Jupiter is the object that's most likely to change the path of anything that comes mm. inside the inner Because of its system. gravity, right? Because it's in this orbital resonance with Jupiter, its orbit is very, very stable for now. It won't remain in this state. And so therefore, we, what we can do is we can make predictions with really very, very high precision on how close it will come to Earth in the next number of journeys it takes. What scientists have found is that in the year 3044, <laughs> it might get within a million kilometres of Earth. Uh, that's quite scary. Close how close is that? Worry. Because a million kilometres sounds like a, a big amount of distance between us and, and the comet, right? How close is that? Is that touching the surface of the atmosphere? Like... I say the surface, the atmosphere doesn't really have a surface. But you know what yeah. I mean? Is it touching the, is it going through the atmosphere? Um, or one of no, the no, no, layers? No, no. I'm pretty sure it's out beyond the orbit of the moon. It's really okay. not that close at all. It's but really close enough close for us to see it significantly on Earth by that point then? It'll be close enough for us to see it. In fact, in, on, on other trips around, it'll be close enough for us to see. And, and we're, we, we're actually monitoring at the moment. So you can, really normal astrophotography setup, you could probably take a picture of it. No. But I guess it looks like a speck of dust at the moment. It's similar to the stars. But I guess by yes. that point, it'll look as big as the moon. Yeah. Well, then it has its tails. Then it has its two tails. And it won't look as big as the moon because it's, it's, uh, it's nowhere big. near as big as yeah. the moon. And it's further out. As soon as I've done these events, I tend to forget all the numbers. But a million kilometers really far away. Okay, so the moon is 384,000 kilometers. This object in the year 3044 is going to come within a million. So it's like three times as far away as the moon, basically. Okay. Which but still seems pretty closer. far away. It is really, really far away, but it's close enough that the Earth's gravity can start to pull it in. And this yeah. is why, this is when they start to describe them as near-Earth objects, because it could collide. It could collide with the Earth. I was going to say, at that point, is there a chance that it could start orbiting the Earth? It could go into orbit, yeah. At this point, it's travelling fairly slow, because this is at its turning point where it reaches our orbit. So, yes, that is a possibility. I think, like, statistically speaking... If it gets close enough to go into orbit around the Earth, it's more likely that it's going to collide with the Earth. It, in order to orbit, it really needs to, the conditions need to be just right for that to happen. Yeah. So I think statistically speaking, it's more likely to collide, but it's not going to. And it's going to reach us another six or seven times in between now and then. And it doesn't get anywhere near the Earth at that time. But we will be able to see it. So the next time it comes will be in 2126. So I think what I was talking about is how the night progressed. So then I, I talked about this object and lots and lots of questions. There were lots of children at the night. There was maybe there were 40 adults and about 20 children and loads of questions. It was really nice. Like I said, the number of questions that came at me were really, really interesting. And some people really like to go deep into some of the theories that they've that they've read about and so I can talk in a fair depth on a lot of these things because I, I spend a fair amount of my time reading up on these and that was it really then after that the, the night kind of goes in its own direction so I sit at the telescope people come over if they want to learn how to use the telescope sometimes people come and sit down and they just want to, to talk about something they want to learn more constellations in the sky or they might want to talk about a popular subject that people want to raise with me is to talk about quantum physics, so we quite often talk about that. Some students came over. One of the questions that got given to me was, have you got something, a really funny space fact for the, for the children? And at the time I couldn't think of anything, but a bit later on I thought of 
something. I didn't share it with the adults. I just, as the children came along, I just shared it with them. <laughs> and it's to do with the moon around Saturn, and it's called Titan. And on this moon, it is so cold that uh, methane is a liquid. And so there are lakes of methane. Wow. And so then I explained that we make methane, and I explained where this methane comes from when we make it. And where, where does it come from, Aaron? Uh, I don't know what the right word for the podcast is. It's our farts, basically. <laughs> <laughs> so I said, there's a moon out there called Titan, and it has lakes made of farts, which, <laughs> which they absolutely loved. It's actually something that a guy called Ross Noble, a comedian, he talked about on uh, a podcast that I listened to called uh, The Infinite Monkey Cave. Really very, very funny. And the kids loved it. But I didn't share it with the adults. I kept it quiet. With the <laughs> I bet they had a good laugh, right? <laughs> they did. Yeah, they did. <laughs> and I think anything around space and the universe is something that's so... It fascinates everyone of all ages. And it's a great way to unite the entire family and get them involved and get them excited about science and, and physics. And, and again, it touches on all three sciences. Because talking about the Titan, even though it starts off with a physics topic... Then you go into chemistry when you start talking about yeah. the chemicals. Then you yeah, go into yeah, the biology yeah. when you start talking about the references to Earth and comparing it to, to human um, where, we, where we find methane. And it's so interesting how a topic like that can draw everyone together. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And a, a big, big questions that come up a lot, actually, are what our place in the cosmos is, you know. And it's surprising how deep people go very, very quickly. Most of the time, I'm just not in a position to answer these questions. I have to be clear to people that I'm not there to kind of challenge anyone's beliefs because we just end up going down a rabbit hole that we just never get out of. And um, I'd much rather talk about the things that we know about rather than um, the things that people believe in or that I believe in. I think it's sometimes it's they people want the opportunity to be heard and to have yes. their ideas be heard. I don't think anyone's in a position to know everything about the universe, right? There's so much unknown out there. But what mm. we can do is provide a space to facilitate that conversation sometimes. And, and in a space like that, where you're inviting them to gaze at the stars, everyone's interpretation of what they see is going to be completely different. And it invites that conversation. And even if you don't have all the answers, for them to be able to air their opinions or their beliefs or what they think, that in itself is a big step to just them feeling validated and heard. Absolutely, absolutely, yeah. yeah. The response has been amazing. I hadn't expected the response to be as much as it is. Uh, I have three more events coming up. Each of them is going to be completely different from the last one. And they're topics that I, I really love researching them. I really love learning about them. But then mostly I love just standing up in front of an audience and having them and, and talking about these things and really interacting with people about that, these topics. Yeah. Maybe we need to do one um, online event in the evening sometime where you can show us your telescope yes. and then show us what you see through the telescope. We'll have to work out how to do this on a camera to make it sure th that the image actually shows us Saturn and, and Jupiter. And yeah, like yeah. That. I have everything to do it. I don't have the camera yet, but I have a connector, really, really cool zoom lens that I bought that I can actually attach a camera to. So I would love to do this. This would be a really cool thing to be, do. That and I'm sure there's those are listeners that are also equally fascinated. I know I am. I always talk about space. Our first episode in the UK virtual podcast was called What Does Space Smell Like? Um, ah, yes. And, and I think that's always a fascinating question to ask and it gets people thinking outside the box a bit as well. So in terms of actually going through the process of, of doing these events, 
are you constantly learning new content? Do you find that you're growing as a person as a result of doing these events? Because you talked about it was the first time that you delivered to such a big audience. And again, I think one thing that Aaron that you do really well is that you embody growth mindset like when you first started with the UK virtual school there was that period of a couple of weeks where you adapted your teaching so much to kind of figure out what worked well for you online and then Mm -hmm. again you've spoken about how this was the first time you delivered to 60 people and again that requires a lot of courage and a lot of kind of growth mindset mentality to kind of go right, I've not done this before, but I'm willing to give it a go and to learn from this and adapt and, and, and to kind of take this as a challenge. How do you feel as an individual when you're going through that process? Because it's scary. Change is scary and doing something like that that's different is scary. So how do you kind of embody that growth mindset from your perspective, personal perspective? What keeps me excited and enjoying it is that I'm doing something new every time. I think if I yeah. find myself repeating myself or the moment that this becomes something that I have to do then I'll stop enjoying it so much and I won't want it to go in that direction so dealing with such a big number of people and putting myself on the spot like that that was major actually the whole day leading up to it I basically just struck back and forth through my house just talking to myself (laughs) just rolling things around in my head making last minute changes to things that I've been working on for weeks the research side of it, I love the research side of it. It was so much fun. What I'm setting out to do and what I really enjoy doing is to create a narrative around that subject. So create a story to tell people. I need to hold them for te- not long, 10, 15 minutes maybe. And so I really love doing the research, finding out about this comet, getting some interesting facts to fit in there, and then thinking about some silly little things to get people laughing a little bit when I'm, when I'm talking about it. And little kind of segues into different topics. I love that development side of it. But on the day that it happened, I scrapped all of my work on the morning and rewrote the whole thing because I was in a bit of a panic about how it was going to go. And actually, I I didn't need to do that. What I created was good and I should have stuck with it because some of the new content that I put in, I shouldn't have put in. I shouldn't have done it. I, I tried to squeeze too much information in and I didn't need to. So in terms of growth mindset, this is a major part for me. This is major, like... The, the next day, the first thing I did, I got back home in the morning. I have to tell you this. What I got to do that night is sleep under the stars. So once everyone had disappeared, oh, wow. I was toying with the idea of driving home. And it was like half two, three o'clock in the morning. And I, I just looked up and it was just, I'm just surrounded by beds. There's no one else there. I had a sleeping bag. I thought, right, okay, I'm going to sleep here. And that was really nice. Just sleeping under the stars and uh, waking up when the sun rose. That was a really nice end to the night. Uh, the first thing I did when I got home then was talk to Lucy and Lucy had been there for most of the section where I was talking and we just critique it and Lucy she's very good at providing constructive feedback she's very good at pointing out places where I've stepped wrong and things like verbal tics uh, that you get caught up in and I find what she pointed out to me at the last time was that I keep apologizing that I don't know enough about something and she's like you know you don't need to do that you know people people are happy to have you there and and talk about a topic with them rather than you being all apologetic because I, I don't feel like I know enough about a subject growth mindset is definitely the uh, the major character in, in this for me and some creativity in there as well I really enjoy and, and curiosity side. right because you have to be curious curiosity. absolutely <laughs> yeah yeah feeding other people's curiosity yeah 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 
And do you record yourself so you can hear yourself back? I don't. It is something I've been thinking of doing, actually. I think that would be useful. Yes. I guess the difficulty with you is because you're doing it at night, you can't really have notes in front of you where you can check. So everything has to be in your head. And that is difficult in itself because I've done science events in the past and I've had audiences. Mm. I think the largest I've had was 250. Wow. It was a practical science event as well so I did a bit of demonstration and then they went and created slime and had a go at doing some of the experiments and people say oh you're so confident and I I, I assume they say the same to you you're so confident and uh, the reality is that anything that is slightly out of the norm is nerve-wracking you're nervous beforehand you've got this anxiety and you need to use that to your advantage when I deliver I will still have some notes written down so then yeah, yeah, yeah. if I um, lose my track of thought, I can just look over and quickly go, oh, yeah, that this is coming up next. And so that gives me that little bit of a reassurance. But you can't mm-hmm. do that when you're outdoors at night with no lighting. I, I do have, what I do have is on my tablet, um, I can, I've set it up so that I can switch it to red light. So the tablet is totally red. So I do have some notes written there. And what I tend to do, there'll be sort of a minute or two here and there where I say, okay, just give me a moment and then I'll come back to you. And then I very quickly double check, boom, 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 okay, this is that number, that's number. So okay, I do, so you do have notes, yeah. I do have my backup, yeah. I yeah, yeah, you do backup. need that, you do yeah, need yeah, that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, even as teachers going into a lesson, you know you've got a clear plan, but having those notes written down and having a direction that you're going in, so if you do go off tangent, you can come back again, can go through stuff again, um, and you've got that flow. So it's great that you've got that. So how do you see this going going forwards because at the moment when this is being recorded we're still in the summer holidays and then when UK virtual school starts back again in September you've obviously got some events happening so you are literally going to be a teacher by day an astronomer by night and how do you see this go- happening as you approach Christmas because I assume when you've got shorter days you're going to be able to do a lot more during the evening and are you planning to have more kind of events closer to Christmas? Last week, I swore I was only going to do one event a month because uh, during term time, I'm so busy, I, I don't have yeah. time to put into it. And within a week, it's gone up to three events already this <laughs> for September, which is probably the worst month to do anything other than just focus on my job. So I'm already prepared for these, so I'm confident with these ones, actually. But uh, as the nights creep in, what this offers an opportunity to do is to do more stuff with children because when it's not getting dark, to see things till... 10 p.m. Most people, kids, they're not going to stay out that late. Yeah. So as we go into the winter, the lady that I work with, Marika, she's a good friend of mine and we're both on track with this. We don't have some end goal in, in mind here and we both said that the moment we stop enjoying, she loves meeting people and organizing things with people and she's really on that side of it. Uh, so she does all the bits that I really don't like. And so as the winter creeps in, what this will offer is, as you said, it will offer earlier nights. And so this will be an opportunity for me to teach a lot more children to do this with children, which is really what I'm, I love doing the most, actually, because they actually ask the better questions. The, the adults tend to try and be clever and ask really difficult questions, and they, they quite often miss the mark. And then it, the kids come along and they ask what the adults think is a really simple question. And it turns out that the answer is can be really profound, you know. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and so teaching the kids, showing the kids the stars is really lots of fun. So that's the direction we're going up to Christmas. And the downside of it getting closer to, to winter 
is that is the weather. So yeah, uh, we we do have a lot of clear nights here. But when I do the events, what I'll have to do as the months progress is rather than having a specific night when I can be confident and that the sky will be clear, it'll be some time over the next three nights we're going to do this event, and then whichever those nights offers the best weather conditions, that's the one we'll go for then. We're yeah. quite fortunate here that it doesn't get that cold. We only really have maybe two months of winter in, in Portugal, and then we have a kind of wet season either side of the winter uh, in autumn and spring. So yeah, so it's a good location for it, actually, a very good location. So it's not like the UK where every other day is a wet day. <laughs> I would never, ever try. I come from Wales. There's no way I will ever do a stargazing event in Wales. Or I definitely won't plan one. If uh, if I happen to turn up there and the, on the one day in the year when the weather is nice, <laughs> then I'll maybe do an astrogazing night. <laughs> how do your hobbies and your interests in physics and, and maths generally, how do they inform your teaching? Because I have heard from some of your students that you have all this knowledge and they love asking you questions and they love kind of going off the tangent as well. Uh, do you feel that having that extra knowledge around space, you can actually utilize it in class as well? Or, or is it because the curriculum is so narrow at the moment that you're not able to do that? I really like being taken off on a tangent, actually. I encourage my students to do it as much yeah. as possible. I find it breaks the lesson up. Um, you know, I try to inject as much enthusiasm into the subject areas as I can, but when you're preparing students for something like their GCSEs, you have a limited amount of time. Yeah. You have to cover the subject material, and as much as it would be really nice to go into the history of the subject and, and to talk mm -hmm. about uh, some of the really amazing applications of that subject area, what the students really need to know how to do is to how to apply the mathematics and how to describe that physical phenomena so that they can get through their exams. Giving my students the chance to just divert me off on some path, it really breaks the lesson up. And so I like this back and forth. I really enjoyed that. Plus, I get to talk about the things that I really love, which is usually something to do with space or... Actually, actually, we can go anywhere. We can go anywhere. It generally to do with sciences. Uh, more and more as time is coming on, I'm learning about more interesting maths phenomena. One of the questions that came up in their past exam questions turned out to be something called the logistics equation, which is something I had looked into in, in a branch of science that I'm really interested in called complexity. And it's about this logistics equation. When you reiterate it, it just it creates really interesting patterns and things like this. And so this was a chance for me. I've, I've gone off piece now. I've just done exactly the same thing that I said I like doing. It's great because so, even though I've got a master's in maths and physics, I've not come across this concept of logistical equation before. It describes lots of things, but what I'm familiar with it describing are um, population sizes. So the question in the exam was about, it was a recursive iteration question where you, you put the number in and take the answer and put it back through it yeah. uh, recursively. You, you do this many times, you iterate it. It was about rabbit populations. And below a certain number, this logistics equation, depending on what the factors are in there, the constants are in there, below a certain number of rabbits, they can't support their own population. And then below a certain number, the, the population just sort of skyrockets, you know. And that was interesting. But I don't get to, to very often do that with maths. That's what, what I was getting to, actually. With, with physics, uh, with chemistry, I can really go off on a tangent. I can take students to really fascinating, what I think are fascinating areas. And I, and I assume that they find them fascinating. They, they sit there and listen intently. I think maybe they're just happy to have a little break from their, <laughs> from their math, from the preparation that they're doing. But in maths, less so. I do that less so in maths. And I've started being able to do it more this last year or so because I've been reading up a bit more about 
uh, interested in mathematics. And uh, you're also doing Coding Club with UK mm-hmm. Virtual School. So you did that last year as a social club, and then we've got it again this year. How do you find that? Because as a physicist, you you, you do you learn coding, right? And I learn coding yeah, as yeah. well. Do you find that's a different skill set? And does that make a different part of your brain hurt when trying to figure out how to do things? <laughs> I, I lean quite heavily on some of the amazing resources that are available online for, for coding for children, actually. Mm. I've found some really fantastic ideas the coming year to do with the coding club so I was happy to hear that there will be more coding students this year because uh, I found some activities that are actually uh, physical they're physical activities the students will need some stuff printed out and uh, they have to arrange bits of paper to to solve problems basically I really enjoy teaching the coding it's such an important thing it's so useful for us to understand the technologies that run our lives these days and I'm not suggesting that I do that or that I understand it. I mean, it's nice to know the basics, you know. I think this yeah. is useful, just to understand how a computer program can start to be formulated and put together. And like I said, some of the resources that are available to teach children uh, that are freely available online are really, really impressive. Yeah. And so a big part of it from last year was just showing, taking the students through some of these things. And then if they develop an interest, they can pursue this on their own. They could go off at their own Basically. Yeah, and I think one of the students that you have in in your class, she wants to grow up and become a um a CEO of a games company. So I think for wow. her, she has like a vision of she wants to learn how to code because her vision is that she wants to own this company that's going to create amazing games. So I think for things like that where they can dabble in and have a go in a in an environment which is a bit more laid back, it's not it's not purely academic. It's a social club. I think it's it's great. Yeah, yeah, I agree. And that student has actually started building games. We did some lessons building the games and she's on her way. She's well on her way. (laughs) And she's still in primary. So imagine what's going to happen by the time she gets to uni level, right? Wowee. And I was learning the first time I did coding was at uni. And then that shows if she's starting at this age, she's going to be way ahead of anyone from our kind of generation. <laughs> yeah, no, same here. I didn't start learning coding until I was at university. I hadn't, I didn't even own a computer until I was at university. Same. I owned a games machine when I was in my early teens, I think, mid-teens, yeah. Did you play Snake on yeah. it? I had, no, Snake, I played Snake on my phone. Do you remember the Snake game on your phone? And you had to go back uh, It was showing our ages now, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Actually, do you know what I have? I now have a phone. I got myself an old school Nokia, which my son Bobby can play with as much as he wants and it won't get damaged. And it has snake on it. <laughs> but, um, but it's not as good as the snake it used to be. It's actually not as good as it used to be. There's too much movement. You've got too much control. Yeah. It's nice just back, forth, up and down. <laughs> yeah. Um, I think it's been great kind of hearing about your astronomy journey and uh, throughout the summer and what you've been up to and, and just talking about space and and just things that I don't normally get to discuss with people. And I'm sure the listeners have enjoyed hearing that as well. And it'll inspire them to go and find a local stargazing, even if you're in the UK, I'm sure you can find yeah. something uh, on a day um, <laughs> where you can go and see, or just sit in the garden and have a look up. Because even when you're in the city, you can still make out a lot of the stars um, if you look really closely and you kind of allow your eyes to adapt to, to the dark sky. But, There's um, a surprising amount of astronomy that you can do in the city, actually. Yeah. There are people who sit in city parks and they start uh, trying to notice the difference between the brightness of variable stars on a daily basis and things. Yeah, it, you can do a lot, yeah. 
And I'm sure that there's also live footage online where you can go and have a look at telescopes that are gazing. I've seen it where you can actually control a telescope online. That's so the one. You, could That's just, the one, yeah. you just log in and then you actually control the telescope yourself. You might have to book yourself in for it. But yeah, and these are really impressive telescopes. There's loads of stuff you can do online, actually. Exactly. Uh, so either yeah. offline or online, you can find a way of looking up yeah. at the sky. So I'll definitely have to find a way to record an astronomy lesson. That will offer an interesting challenge. I'll enjoy putting some thought into that. I'll, I'll get onto that. Maybe it'll be a cold winter night uh, activity. Yeah, I think that would be great. And uh, I think a lot of listeners will probably tune into that and have a, have a listen of what you're doing. Um, so thank you so much, Aaron, for taking part today and sharing with us your hobby and how you've kind of adapted to online teaching and, and kind of telling us a little bit about you because I think it's important as an online school for us to have our teachers be humans with the audience that they have and for parents to realize who they are so that when parents kind of enroll their kids with us they know what to expect and that all our teachers are amazing in their own respect and they have all their quirks and and their interests and and crazy things that they get up to and this is what makes our community so diverse uh, yet so exciting because we bring different aspects to it so thank you so much thank you for having me thank you very much Thank you for listening into the UK Virtual School podcast. We hope you took value from this podcast. And if you did, please remember to like and to subscribe and to share what you've learned with other families. Now, if you want to find out about UK Virtual School, go to ukvirtualschool.co.uk or you can join our page or Facebook group, UK Virtual School. We hope that your home education journey is an exciting one. And if you're right at the beginning of starting out, do reach out to us and ask us for some support. I'm Sid, you've been listening into the UK Virtual School podcast and I'll see you next time.